have two sermons ready in case I talk real fast. We're studying through a textbook, Systematic Theology, by Dr. Wayne Grudem. I invite you to get a copy and read it. It makes good uh, nighttime entertainment for those of you who are tired of your old uh, forms of entertainment. I found that when I study for a lesson, it is good for the soul. And it reminds me that we don't have to wait until we're called on to teach to study deeply. And yet my flesh fights against it. Do you ever have that experience? You ever find it hard to pray, to study, difficult to really dig in and love the Lord? <laughs> it's because we're all about ourselves. That's just really an aside. I wasn't even planning to say that. But, but I'm glad to be here to talk about freedom and to talk about how good the Lord is to us when we despise our freedom, <laughs> when we mess things up. I'm going to tell you the scripture that I hope to get to at the end of this message. Galatians 5.1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Galatians 5.1. I want to review a little bit of the message uh, that was brought last time about freedom. Remember, these are put in the context of characteristics of God, attributes of God's character that in some way He wants us to have. Communicable attributes. Things that we should have or things that we should be like. So we're going to we're going to think about, first of all, last time we talked about God's freedom, what that means. It's part of His attribute of purpose. It goes along with His will, His omnipotence. God's freedom is that attribute of God whereby He does whatever He pleases. God does whatever He pleases. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. No human ruler, not even the most powerful king, can oppose God's will or thwart the purpose of God. And by that, we learn that neither can we, by our small contribution to history or to the world, thwart God's purpose. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon learned this the hard way. Nebuchadnezzar was filled with pride, but God made him lose his mind and eat grass like an ox. Then afterward, when the time of punishment was over, Nebuchadnezzar said this, Now, now, 
I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all of whose works are truth and His ways justice. And those who walk in pride, He is able to put down. This is probably one of the proudest self-filled people that we have an example of in Scripture. And God humbled him under his mighty hand. And it wasn't just for Nebuchadnezzar. It was for us. That's why it's in the Bible. Because God wanted us to know about that. To know about how pride is bad. And how we should not have it. And about God. And about how great He is. Nothing in all creation can hinder God from doing His will. And this is the basis for the strength of our hope in God. We can have hope because we are convinced, as the Scripture says, that God is fully able to do all that He pleases. He has told us that He is pleased to save us. That this is His will in Christ Jesus concerning us And so we can have assurance because of this. God has willed it, and He does whatever He wills to do. He accomplishes all His will. So that's our review of the freedom that God has. What about man's freedom? That's our next subject. Does God give us freedom? And if so, in what ways? This is a huge subject in the Scripture. Have you ever noticed how often the Scripture talks about freedom and being free? Psalms are filled with it. What is freedom anyway? When you look in the dictionary, and I think it's a fairly accurate statement, Freedom is the state of being free or at liberty rather than in confinement or under physical restraint. As in, he won his freedom after a retrial. And this is actually the sense that many of the scriptures use when they talk, when the scripture talks about freedom. State of being free or at liberty, not under constraint. In fact, The Scripture talks about how the law held us in prison, in bondage, in prison. So we need to think about that definition. We need to consider it and apply it. Freedom is also exemption from external control, interference, regulation, etc. Scripture uses freedom in that sense as well. Freedom, the power to determine action without restraint. Freedom can mean political or national independence, as in the children of Israel went free. They were a nation and they were freed from slavery in Egypt. The American people were under bondage of a sort and went free in our war for independence. Freedom can also mean personal liberty as opposed to bondage or slavery. 
as in a slave who bought his freedom. And the Scripture talks about that. All these ways of looking at freedom are discussed in the Scripture. I'm going to talk about three primary things here today because the the text of our lesson uh, talks directly about one of these and then I'm going to add these other two for your consideration. God has given us freedom in three important areas. Number one, freedom to choose good or evil. Freedom to choose good or evil. Number two, in Christ, we have freedom from bondage to the law. And number three, in Christ, we have freedom from bondage to sin. First of all, freedom to choose good or evil. Does God give us freedom to choose the good or the bad? Let's look at what Scripture says. Genesis 2.15. Here we have the first man, Adam, in the Garden of Eden. And God speaks to Adam. Verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God placed before Adam the good and the bad. And he said, I want you to choose the good. But the key here is that he said, I want you to choose the good. He didn't, he didn't create a dummy. A Well, he was kind of a dummy, but... He didn't create a uh, puppet that had to do everything that God wanted him to do. God gave Adam moral imperative. He gave him moral responsibility. Morality means the, the choice between good and evil. And as we know, Adam blew it. He had one thing to do and he blew it. One thing. And so now we have a sin nature because of that poor choice. And that sin nature compels us to evil. But we're admonished throughout the Scripture to not do evil. Here's evil. Here's good. Do the the good. Do we have the freedom to do it? Well, we have the freedom in the sense that, yes, case by case, situation by situation, we can choose to do the good and not to do the evil. God has given us power over that sin. Whenever we're tempted... God says He's made a way of escape. We're not going to be overcome by temptation. It's a lie that we give ourselves that we just have to be a certain way or just have to do a certain thing or I'm too old to change or or I'm just too sinful to be good. It's a lie. We can choose to do it the right way. 
with God's help and God's indwelling. In Joshua 24, 14, and 15, Joshua was speaking to the children of Israel. It was a very serious time. People were going after other gods. This was the Adam choice. They were acting in their Adam-like flesh. They were chasing whatever they saw, whatever their heart thought to do. They went after it. So Joshua commands the people, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fa- the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So here's a here's a question put to the people. Are you going to think that it's evil to serve the Lord? If you do, if you think it's evil, a bad thing to serve the Lord, then serve those other gods. And by the way, I'm going to take the sword and I'm going to cut your head off. But because I disdain evil, Joshua says. And it's it's like a, uh, a rhetorical kind of a challenge that when you say it out loud, it sounds ridiculous. Here's your choice. Serve the evil gods or serve the good God. I've decided to serve the true God. God does give us that choice, doesn't He? And we see it everywhere. We see whole families and whole communities and whole peoples who have followed after strange gods, false religions and we follow false religion in our own hearts from time to time when we go our own way and do our own thing whatever pleases us Matthew 11:28 through 30 here's Jesus the Christ the Lord of life who is pleading with people to follow the true God who he says is himself. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And it's interesting that Jesus here in discussing what is freeing and what is satisfying to the soul and what is good and restful uses imagery of bondage. When he says, take my yoke upon you, see, the yoke is a symbol of being 
connected involuntarily to another. When you yoke two animals together, you use a yoke. It's the thing that holds the two oxen together to go straight down the row. It's that big thing that antique dealers use now. We, we don't even know what that is anymore. The yoke is the thing that ties the two together. So Jesus is saying, you have a choice here. You can do your own toil and labor. You can even labor under the law. And it's not going to help you. It's not going to give you any freedom or any rest. Or you can take my yoke upon you. Chain yourself to me, Jesus is saying, and you'll find true rest. So what the world looks upon when they see Christians trying to explain to them the great joys and benefits, they see a chain of slavery. One of the reasons that people don't want to come to Christ is that they want to continue on doing what they're doing. They're slaves of sin. And the thing is, they don't even know what the other side is. And they can't know until they believe in Christ and repent of their sins. So Jesus is calling people to come to Himself, to come to Me. My burden is light. And there are many, many other verses in the Bible where people are challenged to choose the right thing, to do the right thing. And Christians, Christians are continually challenged, aren't we, in the Scripture, to choose the right thing. Put away this thing. Take on this thing. Put away that. Put on this. We're being drawn into a life of love, into a life of commitment to the Lord. This pattern in Scripture of putting choices before people is one of the bases for supporting freedom of religion in our country or in any free nation. So the idea is that people should be free to make this choice even if they make the wrong choice. And that seems counterintuitive. It seems that, well, if it's something's good for people, we ought to just make them do it. And then they'll like it. But see, that's the, that's the philosophy of a tyranny. And the fact is, when governments take on that attitude, even when they start out in the right, with, with the right substance of what is good for the people, it never works. It never works because people aren't made to live in bondage. They're made to live in freedom. Let me explain a little more. Historically, when people are required by the state to become Christians, does it achieve any real good? When, when the government says you must become a Christian upon penalty of fines or jail or, or even being put to death, does that really result in any benefit, either to the person or to the state? And I would suggest no. 
Because salvation is not a matter of the will of man, but of God. So, so when the state says you have to become a Christian, they're just, they're just controlling the exterior, the outward part of the man. They're, they're directing him where he has to be at a certain time. At 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, you have to be in the church building. And you can't be in that building over there. And you can't say this. You have to say that. It doesn't work. You can't make people behave just by requiring them to join a certain church. Even if the church teaches everything that's just right according to the gospel. People won't do it. I, as a judge, can make people go to a class to hear the gospel. And sometimes they hear it and receive it. And sometimes it's just it's just a wall. Also, regarding our children, we can encourage them and teach them and pray for them. But in the end... We cannot force our children to become Christians. It's an individual, personal decision. But it's not only their decision. It's the working of God in individual hearts. This freedom to choose good or evil is not unlimited. We can't just choose to live our lives without sin and therefore become sinless. The Scripture says in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 1 John 1.8, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Paul in anguish says in Romans 7:14, "For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate." This difficulty that Paul was expressing is in the life of a born-again Christian. An apostle of Jesus Christ had this struggle. So this struggle is present in every believer in Jesus Christ. People who are filled with the Holy Spirit. We see what's good and we do what's bad. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will save me from this body of sin and death? Who? Jesus Christ will save me from this body of sin and death because I make the wrong choices and Christ still will forgive me when I come to Him in repentance. Much more, if we who are filled with God's own Spirit have this struggle, does the natural man have a problem? The Scripture uses... This phrase, the natural man, as one who's not under God's control, not under God's direction. He's doing what seems good to him. 
He's acting in accordance with his sin nature, the nature that he inherited from Adam, his forefather. He is doing what pleases him. He seems to be free. He says he's free. Right? And that's the reason he doesn't want to become a Christian, because he wants to stay free. Don't you know that you're poor, blind, and naked? No, he doesn't know that. So how does he get to know that? How does the natural man come to Christ? He can't. He can't. The natural man can't come to Christ. Who can come to Christ? The one who receives faith from Christ. Who receives the call from Christ. Who says, come unto me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. When Christ says, I stretched out my arms on the cross and my blood came out to cover your sins. That's the only hope you have because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It's when that reality spiritually is discerned in a man, in a woman, in a child, that's when faith is born. And that's when we have any possibility of responding to God and coming to God. The Scripture says, No man can come to Me unless the Father draws him. That's what Jesus said. No man can come to Me unless the Father draws him. Salvation, friends, is a work of God. And that's what we're going to talk about next. Freedom. Our freedom can only be in Christ and through Christ. We can have no freedom as long as we're only following our natural inclinations, our natural nature, our, what seems right at our core is wrong. Before I get there, let me tell you this, because I think that sometimes illustrations in the world are helpful to our understanding. God has placed in all human beings a deep desire to be free. To exercise self-determination regarding many aspects of our lives, including the rule of nations. During the American Revolution, Patrick Henry said, give me liberty or give me death. He was very committed to the idea of liberty for his nation because that translated into individual freedom, individual liberty. And I won't go through the long list of usurpations and tyranny that the King of England put upon his own people in America. But let me tell you that, that Americans were justified in wanting to be free from that tyranny. 
The Declaration of Independence carried that idea forward. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. We have a deep-seated human need to be free. And it's put there by God, I believe. And I'll tell you that in scriptures. I'll show you that in just a minute. This is why people instinctively feel that living under a dictatorship is wrong. It's immoral. It's why being put in prison is so demeaning. It it takes away that God-formed desire for freedom. The inscription on the Statue of Liberty is a poem by Emma Lazarus. This is the statue that stands in the harbor at New York. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. The wretched refuse of your teeming shore, send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. America held that promise of freedom to people who were long enslaved by kings and churches who demanded obedience and obeisance, who sucked the people dry and cared nothing for their bodies or their souls. There is a yearning in the human spirit to breathe free. And it's not bad. It's not wrong or selfish. This desire for liberty is placed in our souls by God Himself. God looked upon His people Israel in bondage in Egypt and He yearned to set them free. He did not merely set them free so that they would be able to live for themselves and do whatever they desired, whatever they pleased. So herein lies the rub. He sets us free for a purpose. And it's His purpose. He gives us freedom, but then He holds us accountable for how we use that freedom. He gave Adam the freedom, choose good or choose evil. And then he held him accountable for choosing evil. He holds us accountable for choosing evil. He he holds us accountable for not choosing the way of life. There were people who would come to Jesus and say, tell me, how can I inherit eternal life? Two people that I know of, probably three or four, but two in particular... He said, well, what does the law say? You know, you know what it says. Just love the, God, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Just love continually, all the time, 
give yourself completely, never be selfish, never sin, then you can have eternal life. One guy even said, oh, I've done that. (laughs) I've done that. So then Jesus starts going down the list. And he gets to one that he says, oh, can't do that. I'm too rich to give up everything I have. And, And he could have gone on, of course, with any of us. Because why? Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We are by nature sinful people. And so God holds us accountable with the penalty of sin, which is death. So we all have a common direction when we are natural, in our natural state, that is death. The death penalty for sin is hell. So that's where we're all headed unless something intervenes, something happens to take us out of that main path into the narrow path. The narrow path is the path that leads to eternal life and that is Jesus Christ. Believe in Jesus Christ. Confess that He is God, that God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. It's really simple. So why don't people choose that? Because they don't believe it. Or they love their sin too much, their freedom, what they think is freedom. Let's look at Psalm 81. Sing aloud to God our strength. Is that the one? Do I have it right? Sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Raise a song. Sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre with the harp. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon on our feast day. For it is a statute for Israel, a rule of the God of Jacob. He made it a a decree in Joseph when he went out over the land of Egypt. I hear a language I had not known. I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. In distress you called, and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Selah. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me, there shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward Him and their fate would last forever. But He would feed you with the finest of the wheat and with honey from the rock. I would satisfy you. Here's a God who is in amazement 
that He offers fullness of life and the God of the universe to be their advocate and they push Him away. God's, God's amazed at that. I can't, I can't believe you would do that. Just look what would be there for you if you would just come to me. Psalm 44, 1 and 2. O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. So the psalmist is here drawing a distinction between the people who are already in the land who were natural men and women who did not follow God. And God had planned for them destruction to drive them out, the people of Canaan. He said, but God drove them out, but His own people, the people of Israel, He planted there. God did it. God did it. Psalm 102, 18-20 Let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord that He looked down from His holy height. From heaven the Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners to set free those who were doomed to die. God, the King of the universe, looked down from heaven and sees His people in bondage. And He said, you know, I'm going to change that. I'm going to do something about that. So God personally intervened on behalf of His people, the people whom He loved, the people whom He put His favor upon. God did it. The people weren't crying out to Him. Moses didn't even know who He was. God appeared to Moses and called him from a burning bush. He said, i got something for you to do. And he said, I don't want to do that. Yep, you're going to do it. And I'm going to show you what to do. And you are going to do it. And Moses believed and obeyed. And, and he brought the word to a people who didn't want to hear it. But they followed because of the great might of God. And God did it. It took ten plagues to convince the Egyptians to let the people go. It took the tenth plague even to convince the people of Israel that they wanted to go. Can you believe a people that love bondage? Well, yeah. Why do we do the things we do? Why do we allow ourselves to be in bondage to sin? In Jeremiah 34, we see that God, God takes this freedom very seriously. First of all, He takes very seriously the fact that He, God, purchased freedom for His people, the people of Israel. He says, I freed you from Egypt, but what? You turned against me. 
You went and worshipped other gods. You refused to go into the promised land. He said, here's, here's my word to you. This land is flowing with milk and honey. You're going you're to reap the grapes off the vines that you didn't plant or tend. You're going to eat the grain out of the ground that other people planted and I drove them out so that you could have it. And what did they say when it was time to go in? Oh, oh, there are giants in this land. This is, you know, there are too many for us. We're just like grasshoppers. They're going to squish us. And God was angry at that response. And He swore in His wrath, you will not enter My rest. Everyone who was over 20 years old died in the wilderness. God was not pleased with that attitude of people who wanted to go back to Egypt. How many times did they say, let's just kill this Moses dude Let's go back to Egypt where at least we had something to eat. And, and God takes very seriously how we treat other people with regard to freedom. Do we hold people in bondage? You know, Jesus railed against the people the Pharisees who wanted to keep the people in bondage to the law and to the traditions of men, even against the law. And Paul and Peter had to fight with their own Christian brothers who wanted to reimpose the law upon people as a condition for salvation. God holds very seriously the idea of freedom. In Jeremiah 34... Starting at verse 18. I'm sorry, starting at verse 8. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people in Jerusalem to make a proclamation of liberty to them that everyone should set free his Hebrew slaves, male and female, so that no one should enslave a Jew, his brother. And they obeyed. All the officials and all the people who had entered into the covenant that everyone would set free his slave, male or female, so that they would not be enslaved again. So they made a... The, the word of the Lord came, set the people free. I didn't, I didn't bring you into a land of freedom in order for you to enslave one another. That this is just not my plan. And I'm mad about it. Set them free. So the king makes a proclamation about it. Says, oh, okay. Everybody, I want you to free your slaves, but, you know, free them in seven years. We don't want to rock the boat too much here. And they did it. They obeyed and set them free. Verse 11. But afterward... They turned around and took back the male and female slaves they had set free and brought them into subjection as slaves. So how do you think God is going to respond to His own people that He set free who want to impose this slavery upon their brothers and sisters? How do you think God is going to respond to that? It's not pretty. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord. 
Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I myself made a covenant with your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, saying, At the end of seven years, each of you must set free the fellow Hebrew who has been sold to you and has served you six years. You must set him free from your service. But your fathers did not listen to me or incline their ears to me. You recently repented and did what was right in my eyes by proclaiming liberty each to his neighbor. And you made a covenant before me in the house that is called by my name. But then you turned around and profaned my name when each of you took back his male and female slaves whom you had set free according to their desire and you brought them into subjection to be your slaves. Therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me by proclaiming liberty, everyone to his brother and to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim to you liberty to the sword, to pestilence and to famine, declares the Lord. I will make you a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they had made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf. And I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives. Their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. And Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his officials, I will give into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives, into the hand of the army of the king of Babylon, which has withdrawn from you. God sets his people free for a purpose. Speak liberty to the captive. <laughs> Two things I want to focus on as we, as we end here. One is that just as the people of Israel didn't see what they had and refused to enter into the land, so it is with us. God calls us in a general call, doesn't he? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever should come to Him would not perish but have everlasting life. Believe in the Lord God and you will be saved. Believe in Jesus Christ, His Son. You'll be saved. And yet people push that back, push it away. So that's like the children of Israel that refused to go in. And some people do it in a pious sort of way. Some people think, oh, I can just, I'll do my best. Have you ever had this kind of survey question to the people of the world who haven't heard the gospel? How, how do people get into heaven, you ask? In fa and, and by the way, I've found in my experience of talking to people, it's more effective just to ask them what they think than to tell them what they have to know. Sometimes 
So I, sometimes I ask people, how do you think people get into heaven? Well, if I do the right things. And I hope, you know, I, I, I do the best I can. And it's kind of like a balance. And I hope that I've done more good than bad, is what they say. By and large, people see the entrance to heaven as a balance. And I have to say, well, you know, that's not my understanding. That's not my belief from Scripture. And, and then, of course, we talk about how one sin will keep someone out so that no one is qualified for heaven. And so what you need to do is believe that Jesus Christ paid that penalty to invite you into heaven and tell Him you're sorry. That's about it. And, and really believe it. Believe that you're a sinner and that you're sorry and don't intend to sin again. Repentance. And people push it away. They want to earn it themselves. And even some, some of us get into the church and we believe in Christ. We believe He paid the price. And yet we keep thinking that somehow we need to earn our way. And that's what Hebrews 3, 7 is about, I think. I think it's about people who refuse to enter into God's rest. Two ways. People refuse to enter into God's rest just by rejecting God altogether. And the other thing they do is they, they want to earn it through their own toil and labor. Both of those things are refusing to enter into God's rest. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, and it's isn't it incredible that Cody chose this scripture today. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Here in this passage of Hebrews, Egypt is a picture of sin. Or, or actually, Egypt is always a picture of sin. And the, and the presentation of this concept throughout the Scripture. And the promised land is a picture of rest. It's a picture of rest from the labor of the law and of rest from sin. It's a picture of heaven. God gives us these things as... Pictures, you see, things that happen in the Old Testament. So some would rather go back to their lives of labor and toil, like the Israelites wanted to go back to Egypt, trying to work their way into heaven, than to just enter into God's rest. And that's a sad condition to be in, because you can't do it. You can't get there. And that's the reason for God's warning in Hebrews. Let's look at Hebrews 3.12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 
So here's the part about don't let, don't let sin deceive you. Don't be so enamored with sin that you refuse to enter into God's rest. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned? whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? See, they sinned by not going in. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. That's the point here. They were unable to enter into the promised land because of unbelief, because of their hardness of heart, because they wanted their sin, and because they refused to believe that God would do what He said He would do. Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Why couldn't the people go in? Because they didn't have faith. They didn't believe. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished, from the foundation of the world. Why does it say that there? Although His works were finished from the foundation of the world. For He has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all His works. And again, in this passage, He he said, They shall not enter My rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again He appoints a certain day. So see, God did it once as an example for us, and then He did it again for us. He did it for them as an example. He did it again for us. And what did He do? Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. How many times has this been repeated in this passage? I think he has something for us to pay attention here. Don't harden your hearts against God. Don't harden your hearts against his spirit who's calling you to repentance, who's calling you out of your natural state And wanting you to come to Him for eternal life and for rest. Don't harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And He's not talking about Sunday. 
not talking about Saturday. What is he talking about? He's talking about eternal life. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Wow. There's the gospel, people. You want eternal life? Here's the answer in a nutshell. You can't work for it. You're not going to get there by your toil and labor. That's the mark of a slave. Slave to the law. Galatians 5.1. Promised you I'd get here. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. What do you think the slavery is referred to here in this passage? Well, I'll give you a hint. There, there are two choices. Slavery to the law, slavery to sin. Is there a difference? Hmm. Well, the answer is what the apostle is talking about here is the yoke of slavery to the law to keep its particular requirements as the way of becoming a Christian, the way of earning salvation. See, there were people in that day who were Jews and who were saying, hey, we have all the law, so to become a Christian, you first have to become a Jew and keep all the ceremonial law. Paul said, no, that's not it. You don't get it. That's not the way you earn eternal life. It's a gift. You have to cease from your works as God did from His and enter into God's rest. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Is it just so that we can do whatever we please? No. Why? How do I know that? Well, because in verse 13 of Galatians chapter 5, it says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Paul knew our natural inclinations. He'd already told us about them over there in Romans 7. I don't do the things I want to do. I do the things I hate. He agonized over it. It was awful. It's awful for me. It's awful for everyone. So he is telling us in very clear terms that it's all about freedom. There is freedom in Christ. That freedom was purchased by price. The blood of Jesus Christ paid for our sins so that we could have freedom that is eternal life in heaven with God. It's the promised land, the land of freedom. Only, and now he has to qualify in the sense of he knows where people's minds are going to go. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh to sin because that's not your purpose. So, so why? The question is why? 
Why would a person who has been set free from bondage to the law want to go back there? It seems because it seems the thing to do. It seems that it would make us more righteous, perhaps. It seems that if we just knew what the list was and kept the list, that we could justify ourselves as the lawyer did, right? When he came to Jesus and said, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answered him with a question, well, how does the law read? How do you recite it? So he gave him the recitation that he said twice a day. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He who does these things will live. That's what the law says. Jesus says, you've answered right, just do that. (laughs) Just do it. No problem. But the lawyer, wanting to justify himself, said, well, who is my neighbor? Who who is my neighbor? See, he wanted to qualify, make sure that he had the right requirements here. If If he hadn't done it, he wanted to be sure he did it right. And Jesus gave him a little surprise. What did he tell him about? He made up a story about a good Samaritan. So there was a certain man who was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he was waylaid by robbers and they beat him half to death. And so along came a priest And that seemed like a positive thing, good news. Here's a guy that knows the law. He knows that it's right and lawful to help those in distress, to relieve the afflicted, to tend to those, especially of the household of faith, right? So what is the man who is the most likely to have the law and know the law going to do in this story? When he sees the man that's beaten on the road in plain sight he crosses to the other side and walks keeps on walking he didn't keep the law he had the law just love your neighbor as yourself he didn't keep it so then along comes a levite a servant in the temple and the levite says to himself whoo there's a guy half dead I think I'll go to the other side of the road and keep on going. This man had what? That was of great advantage to him. He had the law. He knew the law forward and backwards. But he did not keep the law because he did not love his neighbor as himself. And then along comes a Samaritan who is the sworn blood enemy of the man who is dying on the side of the road. And the scripture says that he had compassion for him. 
He had compassion for the man that was suffering. And so he went over to him, and a man that was nearly naked was bound up. He, he bound up his wounds, probably took things out of his own saddlebags, his own clothing, tore them up into strips of bandages and gave him a garment to wear and gave him water and food and put him on his own animal. So this Samaritan who is despised by the man laying on the ground puts the Israelite on his own animal and he walks. The Samaritan walks the rest of the way to the inn. And he puts him up at the inn and he says, take care of him. Here's money. If it's not enough, when I come back, I'll pay you the rest. And Jesus asked, which man was his neighbor? And he answered correctly, the one who showed him mercy. So, I believe that this story was given by Jesus not to teach people how to live good lives, not to teach people how to behave nicely and get along with other people. It was given an answer to the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he made it very clear it's not by keeping the law because you can't do that perfectly. Even the good Samaritan had sin in his life because how do I know that? Because all have sinned. But it gives us an example, perhaps, of what we would have to do to keep the law, to keep on doing that, to keep on and on and on and give everything we have and love people perfectly and love God perfectly, keep all His laws. And what would that be called? That would be called bondage to the law. And this is what it says right here. You can't do that. So the purpose of the Good Samaritan story is a, it's a message of, of rebuke. It's a message of um, frustration because he's telling people, you can't do this. You can't keep this perfectly. What must you do? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Confess your sins. Repent. Come to God for salvation. A similar story in the New Testament is the rich young ruler who came and had the same question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus started walking through the commandments. And he said, yeah, I've done all that. I've done all that. He said, well, you lack one thing. Go sell everything you have. Come and follow me. And he went away sad because he had great wealth. And, and that's, that's like the preface to the main point of that story. The main point was seen in the private conversation that Jesus then had with his disciples. He said, I tell you the truth, it's harder for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. And the disciples were shocked. 
and amazed. And they had a question, who then can have eternal life? See, it became very personal at that point. They saw the example, see, and Jesus' way of teaching was through examples. But it was talking about keeping the law. Isn't it interesting that when the rich young ruler and the lawyer asked Jesus, what do I have to do to get in? He responded in the way that they were already thinking. Keep the law. Just keep all the law. That seems foreign to us because we don't sometimes get the legal basis for our exclusion from heaven. So finally, Jesus says, not only can this guy not get in because he won't keep all the law, but no, really no rich man who wants to do that can keep all the law and get in. And the apostles, the the, the disciples took that and made it personal. They understood something from that example. This is what they understood, that Jesus was saying, you can't get in by keeping the law. You can't get in by keeping the law. Who then can be saved, they said. And what was Jesus' answer? With man it's impossible, but with God all things were possible. See, He was getting them ready for the idea that He was going to pay it all. Jesus Himself was going to do it. Do something they couldn't do. You can't earn your way into heaven. You can't just get a new set of laws to follow in this Christian life and think, okay, now I know the, what the real rules and laws are. Now I can follow all that. And the, and the Scripture says it's good to do that. It's good to follow the law. It's good to do what's good and right. You have a choice, life or death. So do what's right. But as you're doing what's right, don't be mistaken about what it is. It's not going to get you into heaven. What's going to get you into heaven? Faith in Christ. Repent of your sins. Simple, simple, simple. It's not putting a box on your head with all the Scripture in it. It's not even putting all the Ten Commandments on your wall and make sure you follow them all. That's all good, but it's not going to get you into heaven. With man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. God can take that camel and put it through the eye of the needle. And He's not talking about some gate in Jerusalem. He's talking about a real camel. God can do it. Just like He can get you, a sinner, and get you through the gates of heaven. Your effort won't do it. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Freedom. And you know what that freedom does? It allows you to go forward and walk in freedom. (laughs) I was at a party last night in this crazy woman's house. And she gave us a law when we came in the door. 
And here's the law. You can't say the word baby. You can't say the word baby. It's a baby shower. So everyone was playing along with that law. And they were happy that other people were messing up and they'd grab their, grab their uh, trinket, their clothespin, rejoicing that they had something their fellow didn't have. And um, I was determined I wasn't going to say the word baby. And it was a real stumbling block to me. Because baby is a good word. <laughs> and we were at a baby shower. <clears throat> so I thought, huh, I wonder if it'd be better just to go ahead and get it over with. <laughs> just lose that law and then walk forward in freedom. <clears throat> So I was talking to my wife about something and I was determined I wasn't going to say the word and I said it. And I go, oh, I said it. And then you know what? My next reaction was I was overjoyed that I said it because now I could say it all I wanted. <laughs> now, analogies only go so far. <laughs> what I'm not saying is that being free from the law gives us some joy in going about breaking the law. Paul knew that's what we would do. So he said, he followed up that freedom from the law by saying in Galatians 5.13, For you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. He's called us to love freely. Love freely. Not as under constraint, not as under compulsion. Same thing with the tithe. Don't give as one under compulsion. Give generously, hilariously. So let's let's walk in freedom. Let's come to Christ. If you haven't come to Christ, come to Christ first because that's where true freedom is. Come unto me, he says, all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. See, He'll take care of everything we need. And that's another great joy of walking in love and living in love is that we're free. Free to do all that God has created us to do. For we are God's workmanship created for good works in Christ. Come to Christ if you haven't come. If you've, never, if you've never before today believed that Jesus Christ is who He says, the Son of God, God, the Son, believe and confess your sins. It, 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 they always come together. Because when, when we first believe, God's Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. Because all of a sudden we see that we haven't kept this good law that God has for us. We know the truth about ourselves. When we know the truth about ourselves and we know that God has paid for it through His own life, through His own death on the cross, 
and we come to Him. And it makes our hearts sorry that it was our sin that caused His death. Such great love He has for us. And so we come and we tell Him, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, God, that I sinned. And He says He will set the captive free. He will be our God. He will be our burden bearer. And that's good news. Amen.